This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Environmental Obstacles. The Cthulhu Wars. Toynbee Tiles. And Persons from Porlock. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent countenance of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the friendly shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And in the Gaming Hut, Patreon backer Luke Wasink asks, how do I make environmental obstacles, such as traveling through deserts or mountains, tense and interesting for the players? And I think we've covered a little of that in our navigation segment a while back, where we were traveling through nothing, which has got to be less interesting yeah. than <laughs> deserts and mountains. But, uh, Robin, um, is there a, a better thing to do than roll 10 save versus die of thirst rolls? And there almost has to be, given how terrible that is. Uh, what's, what's your advice for making a natural obstacle come alive as opposed to the desert comes alive because it's full of genies or the mountains come alive because they're full of, uh, mountain giants or something? How do you make the actual physical terrain a interesting threat. Right. And this is something that I've struggled with uh, because I personally do not enjoy uh, man versus nature themed stuff in uh, fiction or movies. You know, the the tedious journey from one place to another in a fantasy world, which was, you know, 
pioneered by Tolkien or, you know, real life recreations of stuff like the, uh, there's a sailing movie called uh, All is Lost that is just about uh, Robert Redford trying not to die on a boat. And I recently started that <laughs> and watched for about 20 there's minutes. There's your mixed sympathies right there. Uh, on the one hand, yeah, I, so- I, I don't like Robert Redford, but on the other hand, I don't like Poseidon. <laughs> Well, I, I was not uh, found myself yet, even though that was an, an acclaimed film. And if you like that kind of thing, I'm sure that was a good version of that. Or, you know, the guy, uh, the movie about the man who uh, uh, sawed his own uh, arm off in order to escape a rock. Those things just don't uh, appeal to me. So it's hard for me to recreate them uh, and make them exciting and compelling in role playing. So I'll, I'll tell you first what I have done in the past, and then you can tell me what you do, and then I will tell you the brilliant blaze of insight that I just got that I will apply should I ever need to do this in the future. So All right. the way I've always done this is it's a foregone conclusion that if the characters are journeying from point A to point B, and point B is where the real story starts, but you need for some reason to indicate that the journey was arduous and difficult, either that reason can be you've established in your world that it is a realistic ancient world where it takes a long time to get from place to place and is dangerous, uh, as has been true for all of human history except for the last, uh, you know, maybe 100 years, or just because uh, you want to show that the characters paid a price uh, for even getting to start the story. When that comes into play in a game that I'm running, what I do now is I just ask each player in turn to narrate something that served as an obstacle to the characters and that they helped solve in a way that told us something about them. Because that's one reason you show people on a journey is to show who they are and show what their capabilities are and show how determined they can continue to be in the face of adversity. So the current way I handle that is to throw that onto the players and have them describe it so that makes the story point and then gets on to the real thing, which starts at point B. Uh, Ken, how do you usually uh, handle that? In a game, I generally tend to personalize an opponent, whatever it happens to be. So if they are crossing a desert, I will actually put in genies or Bedouins or ghouls or something that will be the embodiment of why the desert is terrible. I'll do a probably over lengthy narration describing the terribleness of the desert. And then just as all is lost, things get darker because here come cannibal Bedouins or whatever that are going to mess you up. And so the goal is to have one sort of serious, ideally supernatural encounter that indicates that the natural world is a reflection of the supernatural reality of the campaign. And that's basically because I think that the Gothic is one of the few places weather is interesting. And so the ability to put that in is uh, it's a valuable ability and I like doing it. Right. It's operating as pathetic fallacy. Right. And that is when the environment uh, reinforces the mood and themes of the action. Um, and then I've had cause to try and solve this problem twice mechanically. Uh, once with the in Mythos Expeditions, the book of expedition adventures for Trail of Cthulhu that uh, you contributed a lovely adventure to, and I contributed a differently lovely adventure to. And the goal of that is to provide a method in gumshoe to drain people's pools over a arduous journey while providing decision points and scenes from a travelogue along the way. And the goal there is you cut the, or the method there rather, is you cut the travel up into increments and then each increment has an encounter. And that encounter might just be 
you know, roll versus heat prostration, or it might be, um, oh, there was a dangerous tropical snake because you're in a jungle and that's what dangerous tropical snakes are. And it might be indeed a magical effect or whatever it is, but the effect of these encounters, which are meant to be done rapidly enough that they are not uh, boring and differentiate enough that they're not tedious, uh, become uh, the overall story of the journey. And that works if you've got a lot of encounters sort of in your back pocket. It works less well if you're traveling across an unrelieved mass of desert or mountains and you have to sort of come up with a bunch of different things. What I did to solve that a little bit was in the Carmilla Sanction, which is an adventure for the Edom Files. I wanted to open it on the mountain face as you're climbing down into Carmilla's valley to, to uh, ideally kill her, but haha, no chance. Um, she's been forewarned. Anyway, so you're climbing down into the valley to kill Carmilla. And I wanted it to feel a little like that Clint Eastwood movie, The Iger Sanction, where the mountain is as much a problem for Clint Eastwood as the fact that someone on the mountain is trying to kill Clint Eastwood all the time. So I came up with a number of things uh, that you save against that are crises that can speed or delay the players in their approach to Carmilla's Schloss. And if they're too delayed, then they get to the Schloss at nighttime and all the vampires are going to be awake. And that would be terrible. So... What you have is sort of a success track as opposed to a survival track. You're not going to die on the mountain because that's not the point. The point is, is the mountain going to cost you enough in terms of resources and in terms of time that when you get to Carmilla's, you are weakened or worse yet, the vampires are alerted. And that, I, I don't know how well it works necessarily, but I think that if you give each player something to do, a decision to make, and then you're done, you can, you know, climb over a an unprepossessing alp or two without uh, uh, damaging things. And you could probably expand that out to a month's long trek across the Misty Mountains if you just make the decision points, you know, meaningful at each point, which can come back into your your character. Tell, tell me what happened in the Misty Mountains that was awful to you. And then you real rapidly run out a, a quick uh, a set of dice to determine if it cost you anything by the time you get to where the story actually begins. I'm not sure that in play... Because I'm, I never have to do anything necessarily. If I've decided that the the journey is part of the obstacle or part of the adventure, ideally I've written something into that that makes it less or, or rather more uh, of an adventure than um, just roll to save versus windstorm over and over again. The idea being that at the very least the windstorm will have a cause or a focus or a human face or shout um, uh, imprecations at you in forgotten Aramaic, and you can deal with the windstorm in some method that will allow you to confront the nature of this place that you have gone through. And that's sort of the whole point, man versus nature. But instead of it being uh faceless uh, nature, it is the nature of the nature, if you will. Right. I didn't design Gumshoe to tackle this problem, but conveniently it kind of does because uh, it attaches a, a pool of points, which can uh, diminish over the course of the journey in a way that, just ordinary, and they're attached to every general skill, which are all the skills that you would mostly use to tackle these problems. Although, also in Gumshoe, you can set up mysteries about the environment so that you have a question to answer about that rotting log or that chasm or uh, the strange inscriptions on the uh, side of the sand dune. And in all of those cases, that would hopefully also lead to some sort of choice, as you suggest, so that that gives the players something more interactive to do and something that is more fraught where they now are responsible for making a decision. Uh, and so I think that's another way to make these more compelling is that rather than here's 
here's the rainstorm, roll to see if you survived the rainstorm. It's, do you want to go down into the uh, the rainy bottomlands where you're going to be uh, facing a lot of uh, wet weather, but it's a, a longer journey, or do you want to go this route uh, where there, uh, it's uh, drier and hotter and the danger is uh, going to be dehydration instead of uh, drowning? Now, that's obviously kind of a an, an overdetermined example, but that's kind of what you're shooting for in terms of uh, making choices. Or, you know, do you do you go down into the jungle where you know there are uh, dangerous wild animals, or do you try and use this strange flying vehicle that you found ruined in the sands? And so those things then uh, give the players a, a stake in uh, having to figure out which is uh, which is the choice that is most likely to work given their uh, set of abilities, and then if it does or it doesn't work, it feels more acute rather than just uh, a set of uh, linear branch points as here's the storm, here's the quicksand, here's the angry hippos, that the... Uh, angry, angry the, hippos. The choice of, yes, the, the choice of obstacles is, is presented to the uh, characters. But the real thing that I realized is that the problem with all of these kind of exploration sequences, whether they are rife with choice or whether they are just a linear sequence that the players can't change, is that there's a premise threat problem in that you know that you are going to get from A to B. And uh, you know that you're going to be attrited somewhat along the way, whether that's just hit points in a standard uh, role-playing game or it's all sorts of smaller attritions to your various abilities the way it would be in Gumshoe. But there is no real suspense involved as to whether you're going to get there or not, uh, possibly with one or two characters dying or whatever. But it would also be incredibly unsatisfying to... For every, you know, to have a TPK, a total party kill from a waterfall or a vine <laughs> that snaps or something. So you know the GM's not going to do it. Uh, and so really that you know that that sequence is a time waster, that it's just there to make a point about the world, but it's not the apparent threat is not really a threat. And uh, this, you, the real story hasn't started yet. It doesn't start until you get to point B. So what I would say is introduce some point of suspense that is not, are we going to get to start the story, because we know that we are, or is everybody going to uh, die because you know that they're not. So, for example, uh, rather than just, we are taking, we are trying to get ourselves through the wilderness, we are trying to transport this important figure to the royal court so that she can make the peace that prevents a disastrous war, and we have to keep her alive through all of these wilderness obstacles. Or we need to get to point B, not just to get there, but to get there in time to prevent the wizards from rising up and uh, taking over the city. So that there's some other point of suspense that you could actually fear will happen if you don't succeed well enough at this series of wilderness obstacles. And so then, uh, you know, just uh, you're either racing the clock or you're racing the uh, hit points of this NPC, or there's some other similar form of suspense that you uh, can actually invest yourself in and which the outcome 
is in real doubt, not just theoretical doubt. Yeah, I think that we can go back to uh, Luke's question, which is how do we make it tense and interesting? And I think tense, we are beginning to look at, uh, I think we have solved the problem just now of, of tense, although we may have solved it earlier in the Carmela section, in which you set a clock, right, uh, a ideal time to be at point B, and you set a number of encounters between there, and uh, ideally between three and five, because again, more is boring. And a failed encounter doesn't cost you, it may cost you hit points, it may cost you whatever else, but most importantly, it costs you time in the sense, not in the sense of you have to go through another damn encounter, but in the sense of you are going to be late getting to the point and you, your, your arrival at uh, time A is now at time A plus one, unless you take this risky shortcut. And then they've said, all right, we'll take the risky shortcut to get back to A minus one, which is when we really wanted to be there. And then the risky shortcut justifies you having a killer waterfall that could potentially drown everyone. You know, they, they come over the edge of the river and it's like, Oh my God, it's angel falls below us. It's, it's like half a kilometer down. And then they really have to work and figure out how to get down. And it's like, well, we have to use up all this potion of, of feather fall or whatever. Or we have to, um, uh, you know, lower the, 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 the emissary on a, on a litter that's made from all of our, uh, other ropes and supplies so that a single thing cracking will, will kill everybody or will kill one guy. And you have, a tension and an interest within the scene because now the players have invested in doubling down or not doubling down. And if they don't double down, they say, nope, we don't care if we get there at a plus one, a plus two, a plus three. We're just pushing through. And if we get there late, then we'll just resolve the problem late because we're awesome player characters. You make that decision. You say, absolutely. Uh, the journey is terrible and arduous and, um, everybody loses, you know, that much, um, constitution, which you'll have to reheal when you get to the city. Uh, maybe there will be a cleric who can heal constitution. Maybe not. Maybe you'll just go into all your fights at uh, a third hit points until you can figure out some magical way to restore the, the, the malaria or whatever it was that, that, that got in you. And they're saying, yep, that was the, that was the price we paid for staying in this stupid, uh, jungle too long. And then we move through it. But to make it interesting is like with every other encounter, it's all on the GM. The GM has to decide what do players find interesting. If the players are all huge Jack London fans, making being caught in the Canadian North Woods interesting is probably a lot easier than if none of them are huge Jack London fans, right? Because, right, because you, you want to ask yourself, what you want to make sure is that your players are actually compelled by this whole idea rather than you're just treating it as an expectation that somehow it is a thing in role-playing games that ought to be interesting and you ought to be able to make interesting because uh, you need the players to kind of meet you halfway in terms of what it is that excites them. And if what excites them is watching Robert Redford slowly drown, then you have found that you can make an ocean voyage interesting, which takes us back around to a previous gaming hut, and therefore out of this one. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. 
Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, can Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. It's time once again for Among My Many Hats. That is the segment in which the covert self-promotion of the rest of this podcast becomes the overt self-promotion of one of us talking about one of our current projects. And in this case, Ken is here to uh, talk about his latest outing in the Dark Osprey series. Dark Osprey is when the regularly uh, reliable uh, militaristic uh, Osprey books uh, become uh, crazy and full of make em up and in this case, horror. And the book title is The Cthulhu Wars, The United States Battle Against the Mythos, uh, written with uh, one of your Padawans, uh, Kenan Bauman. So, uh, Ken, if you were to imagine the readers are all holding a copy of this uh, precious tome in their hands, what are they looking at? They're looking at a fine Osprey book. It is, uh, like most Osprey books, a slightly oversized uh, paperback. It is 80 pages. It is uh, in glorious color in some places and glorious black and white, where that was the color of the source art. But uh, Darren Tan has contributed his standard uh, beautiful double page and occasionally a single page spread of uh, illustrations. So you can see, for example, the critical moment at which the um, uh, Rhode Island militia breaks into Joseph Kerwin's evil headquarters. You see uh, the ghoul fight at uh, Chappell's farm at the Battle of Chicken- Chickamauga. Of course, the Innsmouth raid takes center space. Uh, we have um, uh, the USS Senate versus the Shoggoths under the Antarctic. We have the mysterious mishaps of Operation Starfish, a nuclear test that went wrong or did it in the Pacific Ocean. And finally, uh, a couple of counterinsurgency Cthulhu wars in Cambodia and Afghanistan, respectively. But the book itself covers the whole narrative of uh, the Cthulhu mythos's um, uh, activities in America uh, since, actually since Roanoke, and then runs all the way down to uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and Yemen and all of the current unpleasantnesses. And, uh, as you, as you adduce, uh, Kenan Bauman was my bold and 
helpful co-writer in this. Uh, Dracula was uh, making it impossible for me to finish the book in even remotely a timely fashion. So I uh, hurled to Kenan uh, the spear uh, holding the outline and uh, a chunk of the book, and he finished it up magnificently. And then I developed his draft, and the result is the fine tome you see before you, um, it, at least uh, virtually. You don't probably see it unless you're leaping to the Amazon or Osprey webpage right now, and why wouldn't you? So you've taken uh, basically any military engagement alluded to in Lovecraft mm-hmm. and then added some right. uh, for things that are post-Lovecraft's writings. So how did you go about... Uh, Obviously, the Innsmouth Raid is the one that everybody's going to think of. That's the first thing I imagine that went in your outline. Mm-hmm. How did you go about collecting the other Lovecraftian ones? Are there little uh, obscure references that blossomed out into sections, or were they all fairly sort of clear-cut central bits of the various stories? Well, it's kind of a two-part process. First, I went through every Lovecraft story looking for something that might touch on military activity. So, for example... Um, there is nothing specifically in At the Mountains of Madness that says that the, the Shoggoths and, uh, and whatnot are going to uh, interfere with America when we explore the Antarctic, but we know that it did. So you can take At the Mountains of Madness and map that in. There's a revision story called The Mound, which is about a mound in Oklahoma that is um, uh, leads into the unpleasant subterranean kingdom of Kenyan. And, and a revision you, story in this context is? It is a story that Lovecraft revised for another author and basically wound up rewriting and ghostwriting for her. And then in the course of this story, Lovecraft mentions a Wichita shaman, or I think he calls him a medicine man, called Gray, Gray Eagle. And if you start going back to the history of the Wichita, it turns out they were very early allies of the U.S. cavalry fighting uh, the various other tribes on the plains. And in the Civil War, they fought against the Confederacy. So it's like, oh, good, the Wichita are on the side of good, just like they are in the story. So we can have the Wichita, you know, stumble onto Kenyan and point uh, a couple of American military operations in the West in that direction. And it's a matter of having gone through all of Lovecraft to sort of figure out where there might be a thing to fight over. I then went through the military history of America to say, when are American troops on Panape, for example? And it turns out we were not on Panape. We instead bombarded Panape with three battleships uh, and uh, a lot of uh, bombers and then never walked on Panape, which makes me think, oh, well, that's what the the magic uh, or, or unit 10, which is the secret group until it becomes magic uh, in the forties was up to was saying, Oh, don't land on Panape. It's very bad juju, but go ahead and uh, bombard it. Uh, and it turns out gloriously enough, we bombarded Panape on Walpurgis knocked. So that's just a natural, beautiful thing. It turns out a lot of things. I suspect that if you look at the entire Pacific war, as I pretty much did, uh, a lot of things happened on Walpurgis knocked to various destroyers and other ships that you can then plausibly or somewhat plausibly argue are connected to uh, anti-Cthulhu operations. Uh, another one is that the, we know in the story Shadow of Rinsmith that there is a deep diving submarine that takes on uh, the Shoggoths and, and torpedoes Devil's Reef. Well, if you look into the history of American submarine deployment, there is one submarine that deployed in New England waters during that period, during February of 1928, and that is the 0-9 and the 09 in 1941 is yanked under at the in the coast of Maine in 1941 and pulled under with all hands. So the 09 has angered the Shoggoths by torpedoing them and then they take the their Shoggoths revenge. Or the Shoggoths are the deep ones. Uh the, the well, it torpedoed the Shoggoths, it angered probably the deep ones and 
one or the other of them off the coast of Maine yanked it under. And over and over and over, as with everything, if you start looking into the history with an eye to finding a pattern, you indeed find a pattern. So I knew, for example, that Mount Dagon, the so-called freethinker colony that was established near Plymouth um, uh, in the 1620s and 30s, would be an important part of this story. But it turns out that one of the founders of Mount Dagon went to Maine, where we know from Lovecraft that there is a pit of Shoggoths. And so in Maine, as you dig around, there is a Pinnacook uh, settlement called Sagon Dagon, which I don't think anyone had ever connected to that, but now they have been. So it was kind of a matter of going through, you know, Lovecraft's uh, globetrotting fiction and America's globetrotting military activity. And every time that a band lit up between them, whether in terms of Lovecraft explicitly describing a, a military activity or Lovecraft describing a place and sure enough, our fighting soldiers, sailors, and airmen were there, um, then I can just pop that right in and that becomes an anti-mythos activity. And then there's other things that once you know that there is a nuclear test in the Pacific called Operation Starfish that goes mysteriously wrong in 1962, uh, you know that that's actually a big fight against a spawn of Cthulhu. And writing that up just becomes an exercise in figuring out which ships are part of Operation Starfish and what happens to them. So when you're hitting the 60s, are you looking at stuff and going, hmm, do I want this for a Cthulhu Wars or do I want to save it for Fall of Delta Green? Or are you using them in both? Or how did you determine what went where? Well, the great, exa- the great advantage to using things that are real history, like Operation Starfish, is I can use it both times. So Operation Starfish is absolutely going to show up in Fall of Delta Green because, again, it's called Operation Starfish. Am I going to have the exact same event in Vietnam that I made up in the Cthulhu Wars? I have a thing called Operation Bulldog, which is where the magic teams go into Cambodia to try and take out Cho Cho. On the one hand, that's a natural thing to put into a Vietnam game. So at some point, yes, Delta Green teams will go into Cambodia to take out Cho Cho, but it's not going to be called Operation Bulldog. It's not going to have the same events in it that uh, it did in the Cthulhu Wars, because again, Vietnam is uh, a, a pretty target-rich environment as far as things that are creepy and go wrong. And so in the in the uh, closer time frame of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, what did you uh, find or have to make up to uh, get us to the present day? I found out a couple of things. First, that there is legitimately two cities that were called Tutul by the uh, Assyrians and Babylonians and such. And it was Tutul, obviously, is a name for Cthulhu, that that, that has to be the, the fanes, the temples where they worshipped Cthulhu or at least tried to keep him at bay with their prayers. And one Tutul is in Hit, Iraq, which is on the northern edge of the uh, Triangle of Death, and so obviously was a major a goal for American troops in Iraq. And the other one is in Raqqa, Syria, the capital of ISIS. So if you are looking for fine reasons to go in and destroy ISIS, the fact that their capital city is an ancient temple of Cthulhu seems like a more than adequate one. Yeah, as if a pretext were required. <laughs> as if a pretext. Well, you know, in, in the mythos times and in other parlous times, occasionally a pretext is required. But again, there is an actual mountain in Afghanistan called uh, Mount Lang-i-Mullah Amman, and it is near a valley in Afghanistan called Zin, which, of course, is also found in the Dreamlands. So the notion that you're going to do something on Mount Lang in Afghanistan seems pretty natural, and 
There, I didn't even go to Gulistan, which is another part of Afghanistan. That's something that um, uh, we can save for another project. Also, because Chris Robeson kind of did that really, really well in a short story, and I didn't want to step on his toes. But the the, the modern campaigns, just like the Civil War or the uh, Seminole War in Florida, which I had to find something about to uh, shout out to um, the statement of Randolph Carter, winds up being, you know, any any war, you, you look at it, there's going to be mysterious events, you know, units that didn't come back, strange things, strange locations, and finding them in the current batch is... And the one hand easier because everything's Googleable, but a little harder because definitive histories of those wars have not yet been written. So it's hard to sort of see the patterns and see then what doesn't match them. What was the coolest thing that you came across that you wound up not having room for? Oh, man, the coolest thing that I didn't have room for. I think the coolest thing that I didn't have room for was any of the stuff about Tripoli. Uh, there's uh, the, the Barbary Wars, you know, American uh, Navy sailing into the Mediterranean to take out uh, Tripoli and sort of Algiers it are super interesting and super detailed. And they're full of natural opportunities for Cthulhu mystification. But the trouble is that as wars in America's history, they take up a lot of space to sort of explain and get right. So I wound up alluding, and I think this may have been something Kenan wound up alluding to, that uh, one of the the terrible old man uh, served in the Barbary Wars. And so that's where he got his magic powers, was from learning it from uh, Saracens, just like Ludwig Prinn. And then I knew that the terrible old man in the house in Marblehead, that is identified wrongly as the house of the terrible old man, because Lovecraft put the house there before he'd ever visited Marblehead, is right next to the house of Elbridge Jerry, the vice president of the United States. And I always thought the notion of Elbridge Jerry and the terrible old man growing up as neighbors was delightful. And uh, so I put the terrible old man into the hurricane that drove the British ships out of uh, Chesapeake Bay after the burning of Washington, D.C. by the hated British. And so the terrible old man contributes to that, but then going and, and adding in his backstory in the, in the, in the Barbary Wars and, and more occult weirdness about the Barbary Wars would have been sort of, uh, it would have overbalanced uh, that segment of the, of the book. And so we had to, we had to get into the Civil War and start making things up about Ambrose Pierce. Well, then I guess we need say no more, except this is available wherever fine Osprey publications are found, including uh, your various online sources and uh, your well-stocked local uh, retailers. So uh, head out and fill Ken's hat with gratification for another job well done. And royalties. What happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk that RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric 
metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like... Ruth Tillman. Andrew Cowie. Adam Waxman. J.C. Toodles. And Yadge from Edinburgh. Leave an enigmatic tile on the tarmac of our hearts by supporting the show at patreon.com slash Robin. The eerie lights, the whirring noises in the atmosphere, the sight of the alien big cat moving across your field of vision tell us you've entered the creepity agoraphobic precincts of the Elliptony Hut. So for comfort, you look down and you see creepy tiles that have strange messages on them. These are the Toynbee tiles. And Robin, we are going to explore them, although not all of them, because there is a lot of the Toynbee tiles and people, if they want to have a sort of or text for madness. They have to go to, I think it's toynbee.net, where as many of the tiles that um, uh, have been recorded are kept in the safety and permanency that is a weirdo internet site. So, Robin, do you want to talk about the Toynbee tiles? Yeah, let, let me uh, kick this off. So, um, probably your best source for at least one investigator's take on the Toynbee tiles is a documentary called Resurrect Dead, Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles. It's from 2011 and it's directed by... John Foy, and it sort of follows the research of one particular tile enthusiast named uh, Justin Durr. And basically, these tiles are little plaques or tiles that are asphalted into roadways throughout the eastern United States and sometimes down into the south. They sort of they follow a particular highway patterns, and the uh, they don't all have the same text on them, but Many of them uh, have text somewhat along these lines. Toynbee Idea, in movie 2001, Resurrect Dead on Planet Jupiter. Uh, these have been appearing uh, in the uh, U.S. since uh, somewhere in the mid-80s. Many of them appear to be the work of the same uh, mysterious artisan or message sender. Uh, but once they became known. It's, uh, I think, pretty evident also that other people started making their own uh, faux uh, Toynbee tiles. Uh, the most recent tile sighting, uh, I think, is uh, currently like 2013. And so the, the question about these is, uh, how are they uh, left behind? Who's doing it? And, uh, and why? And then what cool things can we uh, do with this? Is this an art project? Is this the expression of someone suffering under a delusion that's trying to send a, a message to people? There's certainly a set of four tiles that goes, uh, has more text on it and is a sort of standard anti-Semitic paranoia. So if that is part of the work of the original creator, uh, that suggests that, yes, it's just another typical problem with someone who's uh, uh, suffering from a combination of mental illness and anti-Semitism. But is that necessarily part of the original creator? What is behind this? 
And so it's an, a great example of a non-supernatural modern mystery that I think throws a lot of light in terms of how you investigate it and what you decide is true and what you decide is not true of just how much weirdness and doubt can creep into something that doesn't require any sort of alien or supernatural explanation at all, but there's still a real sort of enigma and uh, mystery surrounding them nonetheless. So Ken, what do you make of the, uh, of the tiles? I have seen, uh, there are, or there used to be a couple of tiles in Chicago and I've seen them. Uh, the city of Chicago considers them graffiti. And because, uh, the, the streets are, of Chicago are pristine and beautiful at all times. Uh, they <laughs> tear up the Toynbee tiles when they, when they find them. Uh, so, you, you know, we may be out of Toynbee tiles in Chicago now, unless the various Toynbee tile copycats are Toynbee tiling us, uh, continually. But the and it sounds um, like Chicago gets rid of them like really quick too. Yeah, right? well, uh, Chicago when it decides something is not, you know, when it decides something doesn't conform to what Chicago wants it to be, it will get get rid of something amazingly quick. Which makes you wonder who decided that homicide and potholes conform to what they want Chicago to be. <laughs> <laughs> but by God, those push push carts and Toynbee tiles are gone. Yeah, if you have people you want to do political favors for, creating a whole Toynbee tile division. Yes, think, well, if, yeah. if, if if I guess if the um the the Arts Council or or whatever it is, there it, Chicago used to not even have a city division that was in charge of of supporting the arts, and the fact that they got one in the nineties was like giant news, and so. Um, if, I guess if they decided it was folk art instead of uh, graffiti, then there might be some, but you know, we didn't even have architectural preservation in Chicago until very, very recently. So, um, the city is weird, but the Twin details do not count as preservation. So I only see them a couple of times. My assumption has always been that, uh, someone has come up with a really clever idea of putting those, uh, poster boards that you often see on hobos and LaRouche's. Uh, in a more permanent format. And fortunately, uh, they're less immediately LaRouche, although I think resurrecting the dead on Jupiter sounds pretty LaRouche to me. So the, the fact that they've got these, um, the, the, this sort of, uh, medium, this new medium that they've figured out is kind of the whole point that it's just the guy who figured out, Hey, I can smush this combination of asphalt and concrete down into an asphalt pavement and it will stick. That's sort of the, the great victory for it in terms of, what does it mean? I think that it's probably best to look at it as a bunch of communications through a mysterious prophet. I mean, if that, if you're going to do it in a game format or whatever, then that's what it does. I'm pretty sure that that is probably what a guy who has gone to all this trouble believes. It's, uh, maybe it's, uh, prejudicial of me to say, but it seems more crazy than it does art, uh, to me, which again doesn't mean I wouldn't want it preserved, but it, it does seem like it's someone with a, with a, a, a pasteboard downtown. Uh, ranting about the Federal Reserve and less like someone with an expensive uh, gallery uh, ranting about uh, Palestine or something. Now, uh, Justin Durr's uh, chief suspect as the uh, Ur creator of the tiles is a guy named Sebi Verna. And uh, the idea is, is that uh, this uh, reclusive man drives around in a vehicle that he has cut the bottom out of. And so the way that the tiles are installed without anyone seeing them is he... Uh, would actually uh, drive up, stop in a quiet street in the middle of the night, and then slap down this tile through this a asphalt process and then drive off. Um, there's also the thought uh, that this vehicle emits mysterious local radio broadcasts that also refer to this uh, enigmatic mythology of uh, a 
plot to uh, resurrect dead on the planet Jupiter, which may refer to uh, 2001. And there is also an interesting sort of weird perceptual reality slip element in this, in that uh, David Mamet wrote a one-act play about uh, a radio calling host called 4AM. This is from 1983, uh, before uh, probably any of the tiles were cited. And the fictional caller in that references imagery that uh, is then repeated in the uh, tiles that come along a few years later. Now, David Mamet uh, insists that he invented that from whole cloth and that the whole tile phenomenon is therefore a reference to his one-act play. However, uh, the researchers have found a uh, call to the Larry King show in 1980 uh, in which uh, someone, uh, again, uses some of these tile-related catchphrases, which suggests that the, you know, that might be the er creator doing what uh, cranks usually uh, spend their time doing, which is calling, calling hosts. And so the question is, did Mamet hear that and then forget about it and then write it and think that it was original, which is something that can happen to writers. You cross your fingers that you're never uh, guilty of unconscious plagiarism. Fortunately, if even if this were the case, it wouldn't be plagiarism because it would be a real-life event that he's uh, forgotten that he remembered. But uh, if you want to, again, treat that as a symptom of weirdness, the idea that you know reality begins to uh, shift around the uh, lever of these tiles and maybe evidence goes back in time and starts to appear that seemingly explains what's going on but really doesn't is something else that you can start to play with in the context of a, of a game scenario. Before we move on to gamifying it, are there any other sort of uh, interesting details of the case that you want to uh, get to first? Uh, the only other interesting thing to me is that the Toynbee tiles appear almost entirely in the United States. Even the copycat tiles uh, that like the one in Roswell, which is obviously an ironic nut of, of my stripe, uh, put a Toynbee tile in Roswell. But there's also a little spot of Toynbee tiles in South America. Uh, there's, uh, there's one in Chile that gave an address in Philadelphia and people went to that address and the people who live at that address are like, stop bothering us. <laughs> we, we don't have any Toynbee tiles here. And, uh, there's a, um, uh, there's one, I think in Buenos Aires. So the fact that it's in the United States makes sense because United States is the soul and, and core of the, the, of the world's weird phenomena imaginings. But this bit where it's Santiago and Buenos Aires in a regular world, it's like, all right, if this guy Sevi Verne is the guy, maybe he went to South America. Maybe not. Maybe there was a guy in South America who read about it and thought it would be cool to do it and, and knew that it was Philadelphia centered. And so he looked up an address somewhere, or maybe there's some sort of weird mirroring effect and it's in the Western hemisphere. And if you are at such and such a latitude on this level, a Toynbee tile sort of appears in Buenos Aires and Chile. So the fact that there's, Stuff in the Southern Cone there is the interesting thing over and above the sort of, like I say, if you can find an archive of all the tiles writings, you can sift through it like you could sift through the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation or your own favorite prophetic text to find um, uh, secret clues to whatever's going on. So to create a game scenario around this, uh, you would have a, uh, I think, a somewhat different strange message uh, appearing in tiles and uh, enough mystery surrounding the tile maker that the investigators can never be totally sure who it is. There are other people that uh, some evidence points uh, toward uh, 
One of them is a man named James Marasco who called uh, a newspaper columnist and, again, used some of the keywords, but unfortunately died uh, before the tile stopped appearing and also would have been kind of too elderly, probably, to do all of this at the sort of height of when that was happening. Uh, but uh, in a game, you would create a couple of people who are plausible first creators but also are all ruled out for different reasons, which would create the suggestion that, you know, maybe there is something unearthly going on. And then I think you would need uh, that the message of the tile is not just to repeat or to suggest um, sort of ordinary uh, paranoia, but rather begin to sort of build towards something that would point uh, the characters to in some sort of direction to some climactic event so that, you know, when the tile showed up in Chile, the address on it would actually lead somewhere instead of being another dead end uh, to an inconclusive interview with baffled homeowners. The other possibility that you might want to do is there's one tile that talks about how to make more tiles, and it was found in Pittsburgh, I think. And so the notion that these tiles, after their creator dies, have sort of imbued themselves with his uh with his mission and are now trying to spread themselves uh through not just through giving instructions on how to repeat themselves but through documentaries and podcasts and whatever else is a, a sort of a mimetic uh, intelligence or a mimetic monster that is coming into our world and so uh it, it's piggybacking on the back of um 2001 which if your theory about uh sending changes back in reverse time uh, is 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 valid might explain why the movie 2001 is about Jupiter and the book 2001 is about Saturn and so if we if the movie suddenly changes to be Saturn or the book suddenly changes to be Jupiter we'll know that the the tile uh infection has reached far back enough into uh, Arthur C Clarke that now um uh, everything from say the 60s to the modern day is is unsafe. Yes, Arthur C. Clarke comes to the conclusion that he created David Mamet. Yes, right, uh, which uh seems unrealistic because um Clarke, God bless him, has never written that good a character. Um <laughs> Mamet creating Arthur C. Clarke, I believe actually. But yeah, there's all manner of of possibilities I think with the tiles being some sort of demonic um, meme or mimetic uh, monstrosity that is uh, uh, contagiously trying to spread itself. And when it's first uh, creator dies, um, their, their link to the outer dark is severed or whatever. And they're desperately looking around for intelligences that can direct uh, it spread further. And it's this sort of flailing around. That's like that period of a plague where it flares up and kills all the rats because it's desperately trying to find, um, enough hosts to, to, to jump to the next level. Right. And the mystery that surrounds it is a lure to bring people in. And the more you investigate it, the more likely you are to be taken over by the desire to create more tiles so that in a group campaign, you, you could find out that the creator had indeed passed away. But then uh, you start to discover that unbeknownst to you, one of the player characters has in the moments between scenes been creating his uh, tile leaving car and his radio broadcast system and has been uh, starting to leave behind some of the tile so that uh, the uh, process of becoming a tile maker is infectious and is related to the amount of uh, energy and thought you put into finding out what the uh, answer to the mystery is. And another thing that argues for a mimetic uh, monster is that the one of the tile complexes that's not about 2001 talks about uh, John Knight Ritter 
and the, the head of Knight Ritter Publications, and that he is uh, in the cult of the Hellion with Westinghouse and Time and Fox and Universal, which are all media companies, which implies that this cult of the Hellion is who's behind whatever sort of uncanny agenda the demon tiles have and that our 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 uh, tile maker has briefly uh, uh managed to come to some lucidity and put down these other tiles as a warning before they got him and dragged him back into the resurrected dead of Jupiter and because he'd been driven insane by the tiles or just because he was a elderly Philadelphian of a certain vintage his argument for the nature of the conspiracy is anti-semitic but that's a factor of just whose brain that knowledge passed through but the conspiracy is a media-based conspiracy because it's all about words and transmitting this sort of horrific knowledge of the cult of the Hellion, uh, the things that the cult wants you to think about, which is apparently resurrecting the dead on Jupiter for whatever reason. And if the tiles are essentially a, a self-generating virus, that explains why there is a department in Chicago dedicated to getting rid of them as soon as possible. Absolutely. That they, uh, you know, Chicago, of course, is the... Uh, an epicenter of people being aware of the eleptonic and uh, smashing it down in order that it be a, a safe, uh, stolid uh, Midwestern city. So uh, you might go to the uh, anti-Toynbee department in Chicago in order to uh, gain further information. Of course, they would initially deny that it was anything more than their anti-graffiti efforts. But you in know, the Great Chicago Line, uh, they'd say, "Who sent you?" And you say, "Nobody." And they say, "Well, we don't want nobody that nobody sent." <laughs> Well, I, I can't think of a better uh, exit line for that, so let's head to our final HUD of the episode. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. That is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time, Patreon uh, backer and friend of the show and boon companion Phil Masters asks, uh, I guess... uh, Something of an insider, behind-the-scenes Ken's Time Machine question. A bit of a, uh, a footnote, as it were, to uh, episode 188. And uh, what Phil would like to know is why in the context of that mission... Which mission was it uh, in 188, do you recall? I, I think it's not in the context of the to- of the um, Font Hill Abbey destruction, but in the general context of me causing problems for romantics. Right. So uh, you claimed to be from Porlock. Right. And uh, I, I looked this up on Wikipedia and know the answer, but perhaps this can lead us into a, a wider 
a behind the scenes look at the operations of uh, Time Incorporated. So, Ken, why did you claim to be from Porlock? Uh, <laughs> uh, because there is a stone circle there. Good night. <laughs> End of episode. End of episode. <laughs> it's the summer. We're knocking off early for gin and lemonade. Right. Uh, oh, man. I want to knock so, off early. Porlock is like a, a small seaside town in the, in uh, in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Somerset, in fact. And it is in Somerset by the seaside that the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge uh, went to get away from uh, distractions so that he could concentrate on poetry and mess himself up gr- gloriously on laudanum and maybe more B than A. Yes, a little, little stronger than gin and lemonade. While he is nodding off on his uh, laudanum binge, he dreams the poem Kublai Khan as it fully formed in his mind, and then someone comes to the door, knocks at the door, he comes to the door, and they are a man from Porlock, or a person from Porlock, as he put it. It could have been a lady. A person on business from Porlock who shows up and talks about mundane things to him for an hour, and by the time he gets rid of them and comes back to his desk, oh my goodness, he's only remembered about 85 lines of the poem, and uh, I guess that's all there can be. 85 lines. I'm Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Gotta go take a nap. Uh, and that's the the legendary story of the man from Porlock. There's a great uh, Robert Graves poem in which he wishes the man from Porlock had knocked on a few more doors um, uh, in the, in the process, <laughs> <laughs> which I, I, uh, Robert Graves is, is, is magical. He's my spirit animal. And, and so the question of the man from Porlock has been raised and unraised. Uh, it has been slightly undermined by tiresome historical research that demonstrates that Coleridge did in fact do multiple drafts of Kublai Khan, has it in his letters, is writing away saying, here's some lines from my poem. What do you guys think? Um, so it's not a, Beautiful piece of romantic creationism that falls into the mind of an opium addict and spills out on the page only to be interrupted by the tiresome world of business. Oh, the quotidian. How does it thwart us true artists? Although, speaking as a true artist, um, I am constantly thwarted by the quotidian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The quotidian is a big problem in writing. So it took me and Samuel Taylor Coleridge a long time to fake all that evidence, uh, by the way. So a little credit to Samuel, I think, is deserved. Because I came uh, by, and I came by to Samuel, uh, not because I'd heard he'd just gotten a shipment. That would be beneath me. Um, as you know, vodka is my is, is my uh, persuader of choice, not laudanum. But because... Uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge had, uh, asked me to come look into that stone circle and I didn't know who was there. I didn't know if, uh, any of my time enemies were there. I didn't know if Wordsworth was there because if Wordsworth was there, we were never going to get rid of him. So I just had to say, Hey, I'm here from Porlock. And then he would recognize that as a code and we would uh, be able to talk about the weird stone circle. But as it transpired, um, we, well, let's let's just say we took care of that problem, and then we had to go through a lot of you know backfill to make sure that um, uh, my presence in that uh, time went unnoticed by scholars who would dig in and find out. And in fact, there was no man from Porlock that it was a literary figure. And uh, as a sometime literary figure myself, I appreciated the jape with which St. mentioned me in the publication of the poem. Right, and basically, also, I guess uh, the good thing about a man from Porlock is that if people are always coming up to you saying, where do you get your ideas from? Instead of having to go through the, you know, well, I don't know, I sort of think and things come to me and I'm not sure what that is, but, you know, it's really the execution that's valuable anyway, not the idea. You just, oh, man from Porlock. Yeah, guy from Porlock comes by with them every every two weeks, brings the laudanum and the ideas. 
sometimes just the laudanum. So man from Porlock is not a usual ID that you use uh, with people other than Carlards, then? No. I, you, you, first of all, um, the notion of a spy who has a, the same cover identity in every mission is something that spy novelists and role-playing game designers use to keep things straight for the reader. They're not... It's not real. If you're, if you're out in the field, if Smiley is dealing with someone, he has a different code name for every mission and for every asset. So he'd be Roger to one guy and Archie to another guy and Steve from another guy. So when I'm doing stuff with Coleridge, I'm the man from Porlock. When I'm doing stuff with Alexander the Great, it's a different Porlock. story. Man from Porlock. Well, he, he puts person to cover it up. Oh, there you go. That's right. I told him I was a man from Porlock because, you know, look at me. I'm not going to be able to pretend I'm a lady from Porlock. Not not with all the time machines in all the gin joints in all the world, Robin. So you're being a little coy about this uh, stone circle. Is that something that you're not allowed to reveal? Well, um, let me just say that the stone circle is standing on th- the literal green hill, the literal clouded hill that w- William Blake wrote the poem Jerusalem about. Uh, Did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? That's the hill that if Joseph of Arimathea and Jesus went to England they would have walked on that hill. So just saying key hill, very important hill. Can't really go into it, but Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, Stone Circle, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, William Blake, you put it together. Right. Um, and if you do put it together, that'd be a terrific role-playing game scenario, I think. Yeah. So if you, if let's say that you wanted to protect a, you know, a key numinous hill from time enemies. As you do. As you do. You knew that there were time enemies uh, in the area, it sounds like. So, Coleridge, uh, unlike a lot of people that you run into in the time stream, uh, you teamed up with. You made a, into a collaborator and even, you know, had him participate in the veil out. So you presumably told him something about Time Incorporated. I told him something about something. And, you know, again, Smiley, when he runs an agent, he doesn't always say, hey, I'm here with MI6. We have only your best interests at heart. So how much did you tell him? I, I told him... Um, uh, about uh, the importance of the hill and uh, some of the th- he knew about the hill as well because he was Samuel Taylor Coleridge and full of laudanum and poetry. And that's the kind of thing that lets you see magic hills, uh, if nothing else. And uh, so I told him that I was on his side. I gave him certain proofs of that that I had gathered in my in my temporal wanderings. And uh, he may or may not have sussed out that there was time machines involved because, you know, you offer a guy some vodka, he offers you some laudanum. It's it's cruel to refuse. It's un- impolite, frankly. It's porlocky to refuse. And who knows what was said at one time or another. So I'm sure that if you dig through um, uh, the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner or Christabel, you may or may not find a couple of hints about time travel here and there. Uh, frost at midnight, another possibility. Who can say? So there's, uh, uh, therefore, all seasons shall be sweet to thee may or may not be about a close friend of Coleridge, or it may be about a close friend of Coleridge with a time machine. So, uh, is there any uh, other scoop that you want to give uh, Phil to make his uh, his question worth it? Or I you... gave Phil a magic hill, Joseph of Arimathea, and William Blake. How many more scoops does that man need? <laughs> You're right. That, now that you mention it, Phil does sound kind of churlish. Yeah. It's like, for goodness sake, <laughs> Phil, just keep it, keep it under control, pal. Well, if we're telling Phil all that we're going to tell him, I guess uh, we've told everybody everything that we're going to tell you for this week, at least, and can uh, sign off another Victorious Podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. 
Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Rank yourself among such distinguished supporters as... Diane Donaldson. Michael Bowman. Christopher Gunning. Jay Robinson. And Fear the Boot. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>